Hi, and welcome to Real Nurse Stories. I'm thrilled today to be able to interview Samantha, who's a clinical nurse and she's working in telehealth in Brisbane, Australia. Um, Samantha identifies as an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander woman. And I just want to say, um, Samantha, welcome to the show. And if you would just like to tell us a little bit about where you're from, that would be great. Hey Eva, thanks for introducing me and lovely to meet you. Uh, so I'm a Koori woman from down in Ngunnawal, Radjuri country, which is around sort of Canberra and Wagga uh, in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, so I moved up here around six years ago to Brisbane. Okay, oh that's great. Thank you for, for sharing that because that helps just to put into context for me and for the people listening. So thank you, Samantha. And what I'd, I'd like to do um, now really is start right at the beginning, Samantha, of your journey into nursing. Um, I know that you've been a nurse for six years, but I'd just like to really go back to what made you decide to go into nursing? Yep, so I never actually had any plans to go into nursing originally. Um, I have a mum who was a nurse and her only thing she ever said is, I don't care what you do when you grow up, but don't become a nurse. The shift work is horrible. The lifestyle's horrible. Just don't do it. I don't care what you do. Just not nursing. Um, <laughs> so I was studying other aspects of health. Um, I actually ran my own business as a soft tissue therapist for a little while. And I was working as a first responder and a lifeguard. So health has always been an interest of mine. It's been about 17 years now I've been in health. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... I started off doing the degree of paramedicine because I only did a certificate previously and then I did the nursing and then I ended up dropping the paramedicine because I realized the career prospects weren't as much as nursing was yeah and yeah. here I am I guess <laughs> <laughs> so your mum your mum's advice didn't put you off then Samantha <laughs> um, I guess it did for a while which is why I did other health things first but uh Eventually, I followed the footsteps. <laughs> yeah, came back round. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, did your mum often talk about nursing? Do you remember that when you were growing up? Did she talk about what mm. she was doing and the role? And Yeah, so she was actually doing nursing while we were kids and things as well. So, yeah. um, And Dad had previously worked in the health industry as well. So he was a wards person at hospital. And then yeah. he became a sales rep. So he used to go in and like watch surgeries and promote surgical products and things. So dad has his background in that way. And then, uh -huh. you know, through growing up, mum worked night shift while dad was at day shifts. That way, you know, there was always someone at home to watch us. And, yeah. you know, she'd always yeah. come home and worked in different areas. And then I remember she became a regional district coordinator or something like that for aged care yeah. back in New South yeah. Wales and used to travel a little bit for it and things and did asthma clinics. And I think just seeing the variety of opportunities that nursing gives you was something that drew me to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. And it sounds like it definitely kind of runs in the family healthcare, doesn't it? <laughs> Both mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, before that, I don't think anybody was in healthcare. So. No, no. But. Oh. So yeah. t tell me a little bit about your training, Samantha. What was what was it like training as a nurse? Um, so I did my enrolled nursing training and then I did my registered nursing um, a little bit later and I found they were both very, very different. Enrolled nursing was very skill-based 
yeah. focused on sort of, you know, the clinical knowledge that you know and the hands-on knowledge and things that you can do. Whereas as a registered nurse, I actually really struggled with um, it's very academic focus. You have to write essays and, you yeah. know, do PowerPoint presentations and all of these sort of things. So they were both very different. I remember going through my enrolled nursing and I felt really good. I walked away with an honours in it. So I felt, right. you know, quite privileged and I got a certificate. And from that, I was nominated for um, ACT Australian of the Year, you know, nominations as well. Not that I got, you know, all the way to the end, but I was still huh? in the top six of, um, you know, and then I went to university and I just struggled. And uh, at one point I almost dropped out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and was, am I right in saying that your enrolled nurse training would be more hospital-based and practical-based? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. So enrolled nursing was very much focused on clinical. Yeah. Um, our end assessments was actually quite hard. So the end assessment for my enrolled nursing, I had a patient, we had two hours and I had a patient and then there was another nurse doing her test at the same time. Mm. And we had to draw up our IVA, um, IV antibiotics and give them, but we had to know all the contraindications, indications, adverse events. Yeah. Um, you know, every everything to do with that medication off the top of my off top of our head from a list and we had to tell them for whichever one we were using, depending yeah. on the scenario we got. And then there was a complication in the scenario and we had to respond to that complication and um, come up with a nursing prognosis and management of it. Um, and then obviously escalate things at the end and use a buddy nurse for checks and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, that was a final exam for my enrolled nursing, which was quite challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you know, and then yeah. <laughs> Because it kind of gives you a good grounding though, doesn't it? Because my training, I, I did my training in the UK and my training was very much like that, very hospital-based mm. and practical. You had so many practical assessments like a medication mm. and uh, wound care, things like that. And I, we didn't really have to do the same level of academic study that do now in universities and it was only much later when I went on to study as a qualified nurse that transition from being a practical nurse to being academic is actually quite difficult isn't it yeah it was really challenging <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I can remember for a little while I used to teach um, in the university and we had mature students who'd come into nursing having done lots of other things before and that was the one thing they always struggled with was you know how do, how do you write academically it's like this magic mm. thing that everybody chased and struggled with and it's funny because mm. once somebody explains to you how to do it and you get it it's like all oh, right that's what that's what it is <laughs> yeah I don't know I did my postgrad this year and I can't say that I, I don't think it's like riding a bike for me <laughs> No, no, no. Well, that's okay. Everybody's different, aren't they? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. But I know that's it. Is that that transition is is difficult? Yeah, yeah. So, did you enjoy your training, Samantha? Apart from the transition um, to yeah. academic? <laughs> I, yeah, um, I certainly did enjoy it. Like, it certainly opened up a lot more experiences. Um, and I think at that point where I was going to drop out obviously wasn't a very good point. I, um, you know, as you mentioned at the start, you know, I'm a Koori woman, so I identify as Aboriginal myself. And we yeah. had a subject at university they got failed for. And that subject was Aboriginal Tulsa Rwanda Health. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, and part of it was, you know, we had to write a reflection about Aboriginal, Aboriginal sorry, and Torres Strait Islander Health. Um, and, 
you know, the impacts of that it has today and things. And we could use firsthand experience and also evidence. So we could use mm. a bit of both. Um, and I got told that what I was writing was incorrect and that's not what things were actually like. And I was making up stories. So they failed me. Um, and I think at that stage, that's when I realized that universities actually have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit. And it was lucky enough that somebody had directed me to them. And the person there, Richard, you know, was a really, really good mentor. And if it wasn't for him, I think I would have dropped out of uni completely. Yeah. So yeah. it's nice to know that there's other mentors and things out there. Yeah. And I think that really helped. And then, um, you know, I guess once I moved different places, it was good, you know, that we had a really good group where yeah. I studied in Canberra. And then I moved up to Queensland for my last year and I found that really hard because I didn't really know anyone at the last yeah. year. So it's mostly prac based and yeah, that yeah. must have been really tough for you to fail that assignment, given that you identify as an Aboriginal woman. That mm. must have been a real because culturally that's part of your identity and who you are, isn't it? And for somebody to say that to you, that must have been. Mm. I must have been really difficult on a personal level. Yeah, I think it was hard because obviously you grow up and, you know, in our culture we do storytelling and story yeah. times, you you know, and for that that's what we're doing at the moment, you know, yarning, talking, that's that's, that's how story, t you know, story yeah. time's done. Yeah. So that's how we communicate through different things. Obviously, you know, I had stories through mum and through other people I spoke to and other people I knew and, yeah. you know, you'd, I guess, you know, hear those stories and take them on board and, yeah. you know, listen to them and try and share them again. And then to be told that all of these things I'd been told from everyone and the things that I'd experienced for myself as well were all apparently yeah. wrong. And that actually, actually says more about the person who said that actually, doesn't it? Than, than mm -hmm. you know, the way that you have <laughs> written about it, really, it's, mm -hmm. I guess, demonstrates a lack of understanding really about culture. Mm -hmm which is, is sad. It's sad yeah. to think, you know, that that, has, that was your experience. And mm. I know that was some time ago. I like to think that's, that's different. Do you think that is different now? Do you think things have changed? I think for some parts, things have certainly changed. Um, the problem was back then and still is now is that the academia doesn't necessarily transcript and transpire what actually happened. Yeah. And I think that's where the biggest, I guess, gap is between it, you yeah. know, and even still um, there's some people up here and I've been talking to them about whether we go on and potentially write maybe further academic studies mm. for what it's like in community and the health and the barriers and that sort of thing, you know, for the region that we live in, because where we live in Logan, you know, the government sort of says it's a low socioeconomic area. We know that people have multiple comorbidities. Yeah. Um, you know, and we looked at writing a paper and we thought, oh, how about we have a look to see what, it, what what's already out there? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really anything. No. <laughs> so, no. I, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily always a lack of culture. No. It's a lack no. of resources, I think, yeah. that there's not, you know, that resource out there for people to actually learn and develop yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think you will? Will you go ahead and write? We will see. Um, <laughs> I certainly am happy to, you know, contribute to it. But uh, as I said, I'm not the most academic person. So um, sometimes that's a good way to do it, though, is to do it kind of collectively with a few people. You know, I, mm -hmm. I've done that when I kind of way back when, when same 
thing really somebody suggested writing an article and I was like oh no no can't do that don't know how to do that you know and we did it as a group a few of us and everybody wrote kind of we divided it up and everybody did their own section and then we brought it together and it's actually a really good way to start to to gain that experience of of writing an academic article mm. and getting it published so sometimes that can be a good good way to get over that yeah. <laughs> that, that hurdle yes it'll be something I'm considering but because <laughs> I know I know that you're very passionate about um Aboriginal Torres Island sorry Torres Strait Islander health um and I, I know that that's part of the role that you're doing now can you just kind of share a little bit about how you came to do this the role that you're doing now and what it is that you're doing yeah so the role I'm doing at the moment um is something that I somebody that I work with because I still work um in another position as well on a permanent basis and this is a contract that I have um and somebody else that I'd worked with through doing other roles and different things previously asked if I would like to apply for it uh, so the role is for, as you mentioned earlier, for telehealth. So there is um, a number of us who are now employed, um, you know, with the help of COVID funding to roll out a phone service for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. So when you call up for, you know, one, three health services, you can ask to speak to an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurse. Yeah. And part of my role as a clinical nurse is going to be trying to engage community, um, making sure we've got all the different Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander resources and, you know, health clinics and that sort of stuff that's all around Queensland and putting them on our databases. That way, when they call up, you know, we can give them culturally appropriate places to go mm -hmm. to as well, mm -hmm. um, which will hopefully, you know, help to close a gap and improve compliance to treatments and that sort of thing by speaking to someone else that understands their culture and understands, I guess, where their anxiety is from going to hospitals at times and things is coming yeah. from. And hopefully we can help to, yeah, close that gap. Yeah, and that's that's an important, a really important need, really, isn't it? Because I know a little bit from previous roles, there is there is huge need to have culturally appropriate education, and sometimes I think lots of us have been guilty of that one size fits all approach. You know, with many cultures, mm. not just um, Aboriginal and Torres um, Strait Islanders. I think it, it's it's a wider issue. And I think to have something like that must be hugely helpful, actually. Because do you get do you get lots of calls from kind of remote and rural communities? Is it predominantly those areas? Um, no, it's predominantly southeast Queensland actually okay. at the moment. Um, so yeah, the role for me will be to, as I said, engage with community, and that'll be more focusing at some of those rural remote areas that might have more limited access to yeah. you know, healthcare and that sort of thing, and seeing. I guess, you know, where we can help them. And I think something like telehealth, especially in this day and age with COVID, you know, people are afraid to go outside. Yeah. You know, and a lot of our Aboriginal Torres runners, you know, we know that we're all more risk for cardiac disease, for renal failure. You know, we, we know they're high risk for diabetes and these things. So sometimes we do take a little bit more caution, I guess, with leaving the house and going into yeah. communities. So something like telehealth, I think, is absolutely vital and amazing because it means they don't necessarily have to leave the house, you know, at that moment they can, yeah. you know, we can give them those sort of health recommendations after we go through a bit of a nursing assessment, figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, 
that is I mean it I know from again Western Australia has done a lot of work in that space around telehealth and it's been hugely successful in opening up access to all kinds of services that previously people would have had to travel to metro and all the difficulties mm -hmm. around that in terms of leaving family you know and family not being able to come and visit and support that person you know sometimes mm -hmm could they could be in hospital for a very long time and I, I think psychologically people don't do well when they're cut off from the family and they don't have that connection and mm. it must be that it must be quite a lonely and scary experience that's something that I used to observe a lot in the service that I work because we had many um, patients who identified as aboriginal and just were you know it was really sometimes very sad to see the loneliness and the isolation mm. and you think how you know that shouldn't be in a in a healthcare facility where we're trying to help people back to recovery and that social psychological mm. connection is is part of that recovery and i think that's that's better understood now there's still a long way to go as you accurately point out there and i think there's a big need for it, big need for mm. it. Tell me a little bit about the, the culturally sensitive education. What kinds of things do you work with? people who contact the service tell me a little bit more about that um, so our service is a I guess a, you know a generic service in terms of everybody calls up um, and I guess when they speak to us sometimes we can understand the different language we use you know there's obviously hundreds of languages between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages but there's also Aboriginal English yes. where you use a few different words that's where you hear the word deadly or game and, and yeah. you know womba different things like that you know these words that for us can be normal and common to use but yeah. other people obviously don't understand them and I guess it's a little bit of a, a slang as well as a little bit of you know words and it's about that I guess finding the right words to use with people and understanding the way they talk because sometimes we don't say things the way that they're intended from other no. people so you know we don't and sometimes you know we say things and people think we're coming off really rude but for us that's how our culture speaks you know it's yeah. not us trying to be rude but no. you know because other people don't always understand the culture they can misinterpret things sometimes um obviously it doesn't always happen but it certainly certainly doesn't you know i think that's been one of the biggest things with the word deadly like to us deadly is really positive it's really powerful it's a really yeah. strong word but when you say it in healthcare, you know a lot of people still yes. think deadly is like lethal like somebody's yes. gonna die yeah. So I was talking to someone today about different things and they were telling me a story about how um, he was Torres Strait Islander and up in the islands uh, company, Queensland government company came out and was trying to talk about, you know, quitting smoking mm -hmm. and their promotion was um, deadly smoking time to give up. Ah, and that was yeah. their promotion in the Torres Strait Islands. Yeah. So then obviously everyone was like, Oh yeah, sweet. This is sick. So then they all started smoking because <laughs> they thought, Oh, you know, yeah. this is how we're going to get better because these people from health have come here and told us, you know, smoking's deadly. 
Yeah. So then a lot yeah. of people started, yeah, taking up smoking. And sometimes it's about that language. It's about the communication because obviously the message was that smoking can kill you. Yes. But yeah. Because they yeah. use the word deadly and to us deadly is positive then. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? In terms of, you know, just it's something simple like one word having a different meaning actually changes the whole context of that health education mm. message and it kind of makes you wonder about you know how much engagement and involvement with community there was or not perhaps around mm. you know just taking that suggestion and that message and and checking that out because clearly if if they had kind of done that then those those understandings would have been there so mm. yeah it's it does it's so important to to have that connection with the community and to engage and involve around healthcare messages mm, absolutely and i think the literature that's out there does say that if you want a project project that's going to be within aboriginal Torres the health to be successful yeah. you need somebody who identifies as aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander to lead the project Yes. Because that's, at the end of the day, how it's going to be successful. And I think that's something that we're certainly starting as a government to recognise. Yeah. And we are certainly starting to improve on. But I still think there's, you know, a little bit little bit more that we can do. do. But we're certainly certainly getting there and things are certainly starting to move forward. And, yeah. you know, the recognition's half the battle, isn't it? And that's yeah. happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you have many opportunities, Samantha, to influence that in, in your role, in your current role? other opportunities to kind of do more of that sharing that knowledge and help to educate others you know I'm not talking necessarily community I'm talking perhaps more healthcare workers yeah so I think there's certainly opportunities so one thing that I will be doing I'm just changing it a little bit because some of the people that are in my team have never done an in-service or delivered an in-service I should say before so I having services from previous roles that I've done that are about, you know, closing the gap about Aboriginal Australian culture um, and about healthcare and how it affects our people. So I'm just writing, I guess, a bit more of a script. So that way, if I'm not there and they deliver the in-service, then they kind of, I guess, know what to say, especially because it'll be the first time some of them are doing it. And I, you know, I think, and that'll be for our staff within the unit. And I think that's really important, but I also think it's really important to empower our people. Mm. So, you know, staff that are in my group, some of them are new, some of them have been nursing for, you know, five, six, seven years, but yeah. they've never done any stuff before. So then for me to support them, yeah, um, it's really important to give them opportunities to step out of their comfort zones and, you know, do these things. I have before, not as much in nursing, but I've done in-services for, you know, the doctors or mm. I go and I've done health round um you know little in-services and different things like that or grand rounds at hospitals sometimes mm. call them and you know I've done a bit of that for the doctors and I find that the doctors are really engaging and they you know they challenge you they will ask you questions yeah. and they will sort of you know do those sort of things and I think that's really good I find a lot of the time nurses are a bit I don't know if timid's the right word but they don't mm. sort of maybe approach things the same way so doctors do you know they're very mm. I guess forward in how they ask everything whereas nurses tend to stand back a little bit Mm. And then later we'll come forward and ask questions. But mm. And there's such a need for that, isn't there? Because I just think about my own, you know, experience here in Western Australia, having had um, attended a two-day course all about understanding kind of Aboriginal 
health issues here in WA and that was delivered by um, people who were or did identify as Aboriginal and, and it was one of the best courses that I've ever attended in terms of understanding the cultural aspects mm. because it was delivered by people who were living that and understood it and could explain so many things and I took away so much from those two days um, only then to learn that the funding for that was being withdrawn and I you know you kind of struggle with that I can remember coming away thinking why would the funding be withdrawn from something that is hugely important absolutely needed and everyone who attended those two days said the same thing they'd learnt so much mm -hmm. and then we fast forward a few years later and we have you know a mandatory online almost I want to say ticker box cultural awareness which didn't give you anything like the context mm -hmm. that I certainly got from attending this two-day course which yes it was challenging but it was challenging in a good way because it helped you to understand you know the things that perhaps you um, think are correct which are not so it, it corrected your own assumptions about things and helped you to put into context things like the stolen generations you know and the impact of that and the legacy mm -hmm. and how that almost carries forward were some of the most powerful things I took away but you know the sadness around that doesn't a tick box kind of mandatory I don't even know how long it was I think it was probably 30 minutes if that doesn't doesn't equate at all it's like polar mm. opposites you know and I think that's such a shame because the more we engage with communities and the more we listen and the more we try to understand the more I think the more the bigger the impact that is going to have because we do need mm. to listen and that's been yeah I'm sure part of the problem historically you know? yeah we used to have a similar program up in Queensland from what people have told me up here and yeah. it was the same thing it was a one to two day course um and now ours is a 30 minute online sort of mandatory training when you start with Queensland health yeah yeah and it, I think yeah sorry go on you go oh sorry I was just gonna say I think that's where it's important to you know recognize different people that work in your areas and in departments and yeah. I guess take advantage of knowledge and use them and yeah. most hospitals also now have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander liaisons yeah. as well and you know there's capability teams that'll come out and things so yeah. there's certainly other options out there now that you yeah. can get people to yeah. come out and yeah. maybe do some more education with and do some things regularly yeah. and you know run your own initiatives and programs out of your department to improve yeah. it yeah and, I, and that's true I, I'm not you know I think we, we also have access to those services that are hugely valuable and supportive I just think for me there's something there mm -hmm. about you know if you if you get starting off your career let's say nursing but it applies really to all health professional careers to have that understanding from the beginning mm. helps you to then understand the nursing kind of skills and particularly communication skills that are needed you know mm. that's where there's a bit of a gap I think in and certainly your experience highlighted that you know in the assignment that you had to do and 
you'd like to think that those things have changed and it's a more positive, um, more accurately reflects culture, your culture, Aboriginal culture and Torres Island, Torres Strait, sorry, Torres Strait Islander culture. Um, but, uh, you know, there's still, I think, a lot to do in that space. Mm. There is a lot to do. And I think if you look at the closer gap targets, it reflects that there's still much more we can do. Yeah. So yeah. two of the biggest targets, one of them we have already failed, um, which was halving childhood mortality for children under five. And that was meant to be met in 2018. It was, wasn't met. No. And then the one at the moment is to halve the life expectancy um, by 2031. Yeah. And again, we're not on track for that, you know, yeah. So I think it's, there's still, that shows us, you know, that there is still certainly more that we can do and yeah. more that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I know that we've also got some not so good statistics here in WA, you know, in areas where exactly that, you know, we know that the gaps actually grown in some places, not reduced and not not meeting um, mm. the targets a long way off actually meeting the targets and that that must be that must be frustrating really for, for mm. you working in healthcare to see that as well yeah I think that's why you know I usually try and do different things and try so much to work in roles or you know to do additional roles to help close the gap so that way you know I can create tell people but I think half the biggest battle is if you want to do something within healthcare then you need to involve the community you need Absolutely. to have the people there you need to you know know what their feelings are their perspectives are yeah. and that's because that's the way that you're going to close it and I think some places are certainly starting to do it but I definitely think yeah. that you know any of these initiatives that are going for change in hospital they have to have an Aboriginal or Torres Strait yeah. Islander person from the community who is sitting on these boards and on these yeah. panels and helping to make these decisions with yeah. the community's involvement as a spokesperson. Like, I don't think you can run any of these without somebody that identifies sitting on the board or the panel with them making the decisions. No, no. And it also has spin-offs in other ways, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, kind of the statistics around the number of um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, people working in health is, is, very very small and I think the mm. more the more we do around engagement and involving community the more that's going to encourage people to think about a career in health whether that's nursing mm. medicine allied health that that is a spin-off as that I can see mm. you know, if we do more of that it's going to help people to want to come and, and work more in health yeah and that's certainly something I guess I've I've looked at doing now with COVID and everything else. Unfortunately, it's not quite the right time. Yeah. Um, but what I have in mind, I guess, for the future is I'd really like to be a part of and develop a mentoring program. Yeah. So that way we can have people that come from different communities, you know, and some universities are already starting to do this where they'll yeah. do distance education for nursing and midwifery. So they can still be in their communities and they come into, you know, regional areas for their placements but I want to take it I guess one step further and link them with somebody who actually works in the hospital system or you know if they're interested in aged care who works in aged care or wherever they're interested in you know those sort of areas and link them with somebody that does identify and already works within the system and has that experience and has already gone through some of those battles mm. um, 
and try and, you know, get these people to do more distance learning and then keep them in their communities or at least get them to go back to their community. Then they can be a midwife or a nurse within their communities. And I think then that's, you know, how, because it's one of their own people as well, you know, Mm. then we've got the community engagement in that area. And I think that's one way where we can definitely get people Mm. to, I guess, you know, feel more confident to come into hospitals because then it also means that, you know, this person that's in the communities can say, no, no, it's all good you know, sis is over working at this hospital. So if you go in there, you know, I'll call sis up and yeah, you've got someone, you know, gives them a safety thing. So then they know when they come into a hospital in a more regional area, they're linked with someone in that hospital yeah. already. So yeah. it creates that gap. And, you know, I think that's half the battle is connections. Yeah. And it's, you know, we've got the technology to drive that now, haven't we? I think lots mm. of ways COVID, whilst it's been, you know, hugely challenging for many has actually driven innovation and driven new ways of working and that enables Mm. that more kind of remote learning um and I you know the other thing as you were talking I was thinking there certainly in Western Australia there's always difficulties trying to recruit to remote and rural areas you know because Mm. often people want to stay in the metro they don't want to travel and that would be a, a great way of you know encouraging local communities to to take up those careers with support but be able to stay mm. in those regional or remote areas you know it, it, mm. it requires a bit of creativity but that's <laughs> nothing that it's nothing realistically that can't be solved because we know that, I mean if you look at telehealth as an example you yeah. know a few years back telehealth was you know not particularly widespread and it's it's massively moved forward so there Mm. there are ways of doing this it just takes I often think you've got to find the right person or people you know to help you drive those ideas and innovation Mm. and you know who is it that can help it's identifying those people to help you to drive a really kind of good idea forward and I think what you've Mm. suggested there you know it is doable it absolutely is doable if there's the willingness and the commitment to it Mm. to make a difference and to close the gap and to increase you know the targets around Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander in health you know it's Mm. it's much needed because those statistics are not great either are they when you look at the numbers no no unfortunately if you're looking at numbers they're not very good in a lot of different areas even our numbers yeah 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 Yeah. and I think you mentioned earlier you know our numbers of employment the aim or at least around here the aim is only three percent to identify and we can't even make three (laughs) percent and I and that staggers me you know when you think about percentage terms that we've set the bar low really and I know there's a country health service here in Western Australia and that their percentage is higher than than three but even so there's still much more Mm. to do in terms of increasing Mm. that yeah there he is and I think through doing this role already what I found is particularly it's more north Queensland um, where there are more numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders around but they have clinics that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health clinics that you know that and they promote that they have 90% of their staff identify yeah 
and yeah. you know I, again I think it's because there are obviously a lot more people up in North yeah. Queensland that do identify themselves yeah. as well yeah but it is amazing to think that you can have a clinic that has 90% of its staff that identify yeah. in that clinic yeah you know so yeah. the success and different things they you know would have and get from that I think yeah. would be absolutely amazing and yeah part of it is well how in North Queensland when we know North Queensland is very spread out and far between places yeah. how have they got a that many people that have qualified and b that retained yeah. that you know many staff to stay working in those areas and I think you know it's places when you find health services and clinics like that they're the ones we need to talk to and say well, what what are you doing like yeah. what can we learn from you yeah and that's you know that comes back to what you were saying about you know there being a lack of academic articles around you know closing the gap and the health issues and and how are we sharing that you know why is that not being written up in mm. the academic literature because that's you know, that that um, number of people there's there's obviously something that is working that actually should be shared mm. with everyone else and I, you know I know that there are differences with different states but that's more around how things are managed that the needs of Aboriginal mm. communities Torres Strait Islander communities are you know going to be similar so that learning mm. should be being shared I think I think that's a really valid point that you make Samantha about mm. you know understanding how that's so successful and what can we learn and how can that be replicated and what why are we not writing about it why is that not something that we can mm. readily find out you know yeah well, I think yeah. yeah part of it I think potentially comes from I guess you know intergenerational trauma and the mistrust mistrust of government you know that I guess people pass down and again that comes from storytelling so I know quite a few of you know my people they don't want to share with other people yeah. their stories and things because there's, you know, they don't feel like that, that trust is there. Um, so sometimes, you know, these things are certainly out there, but we don't know about them because we haven't gone out and earned their trust. And yeah, I think, you know, part of that is, I guess there's three big examples from this year of, and, and I've spoken, and this comes from people in the community, not necessarily my thoughts, mm. but, you know, people in the community that I've spoken to. And, you know, when I asked them, you know, what is it? Why don't you want to come to hospitals? What don't you want to do? And they say, well, look at what's happening at the moment. Look at what's happening around us. And why would we want to, you know, they obviously use the mine, um, the um, Jekyll Gorge, which is in Pilbara, you know, mm -hmm. that was yeah. um, blown up, you know, that was a big thing. We know there's 46,000 years of culture in that gorge, 46,000 years. And it was blown up and destroyed you know, and then, so the people over there are going, well, why would we trust the government? Mm -hmm. You know, down in um, Victoria at the moment, they're currently rallying to get the Jaburang trees down there. They're 800 year old birthing trees. So that means for 800 years, birthing trees, that's where the, you know, women's business has happened. Women have come there to birth their babies on land and, you know, on country and 800 year old trees. And they're looking at getting rid of them for a highway. You know, and then you've got up here, we've got Deebing Creek. Deebing Creek, we know, was an Aboriginal mission. Um, and if you speak to people out at Deebing Creek, they will also tell you it was a massacre site. Mm. And again, they're building apartments and residential yeah. areas on top of the land without investigating 
these things, you know. So, so when I speak to these people in the community, I say, well, what, what do you need from us? What can I do mm. to help you come and trust us and come to hospitals? And that's their examples. How can we trust you? You work for the government. How can we trust the government when these things are still happening? You know? And that's, that, you know, that's a, it's, must be a very raw subject that because those, you know, the, just those three examples that you highlight there are, you know, culturally really significant and important part of culture and history and Aboriginal history. And, I guess that you know that feeling of mistrust and not being listened to doesn't encourage mm -hmm. does it? it as you say it just poses the question why why should we trust and those those examples illustrate we've still got an awful long way to go if we're mm -hmm. to be authentic in you know authentic and serious about wanting to make a difference and close the gap then you have mm -hmm. to also display you know that you recognize the cultural significance of these things and if that's not happening then we're we're going to mm -hmm. forever struggle with closing the gap because yeah. people don't feel that they can trust you that's one of the basic fundamental human needs isn't it trust mm -hmm. do i feel comfortable do i trust you and if mm -hmm. the answer to that is no then you're never going to yeah. get the engagement around the targets that have been set so i think mm. those examples highlight there's a long way to go if we're to change that perception against the mm. backdrop of you know the historical um trauma if you like from stolen generations it it kind of compounds that doesn't it even more really yeah and i think that's where i struggle because i guess i'm caught between two worlds yeah. in a way almost yeah. you know um, obviously I identify and the older I get, I guess the stronger and the more passionate about that I'm getting. Yeah. And the more I realize that there are gaps and the more it drives me to want to make changes and close these gaps and work with our people and embrace our people. But at the same time, I also have my healthcare hat on, yeah. which sort of says, okay, well, I know there's a gap here. Now we've got to work out how can we meet it? What can we do? Yeah. You know, and, and trying to find a balance between the two can be quite hard. Yeah. I know maternity services still have a, a lot of struggling, um, particularly in more rural remote areas. Um, there's still lots of stories today. You know, we know that when you look at foster care systems, that there are a lot more young children who are of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background. And I guess sometimes, you know, depending where it is, we need that understanding that, you know, there's obviously different reasons kids go into care, but in our family systems, you know, your mum might not be your biological mum. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's also an understanding for that. And I know, you know, obviously they go in and they do the best they can and they assess everything as the best of their abilities. And that's, you know, that's fine. But, you know, why do we still have so many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders in care? And why, when they're in care, are they not with somebody that is a family member or that knows culture and can still treat, you know, teach them culture and things, you know, with, yeah. with our people, you know, I still get a lot of people. I had someone a couple of weeks ago who asked me, what can we do to engage people who are pregnant to come in to the hospitals and get checkups done mm -hmm. because they don't want to, because they're too scared their babies are going to get taking them away. 
and this is in 2020, but you ask people, you know, when did the stolen generation happen or when did this happen? Or, you know, kids don't get taken away anymore. But when you go out to these remote areas and you speak to them, they believe that the kids are still getting taken. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. There's the statistics are not, not good really. And, and I also know, you know, the kind of, prison population proportionately there are issues there around there are more um, indigenous and Torres Strait Island people in prison proportionately than you know anyone else and and there's there's a lot of questions around that that I think are difficult they're difficult to answer difficult to acknowledge and for communities again comes back to that trust you know it doesn't help in people presenting early for healthcare support and advice if that that is the fear you know if you're mm. a mom with a young baby and that fear is there well yeah my child might get taken away that's not going to help mm. in you seeking out healthcare advice or support early you know mm. it becomes a, yeah. a situation doesn't it where people will only go if it's absolutely you know they've tried mm. everything else so it's almost the last resort which is not not good really but yeah well yeah. we see that happen a lot and obviously me sitting here you know talking about these remote areas I don't know either side of the story that well you know I hear the story yeah. of the Aboriginal people saying no they're still taking my kids away then you hear the stories, you know, coming from the, yeah. you know, the health professionals saying, well, you know, this is, this is the reason why this is what's not being provided and, yeah. you know, and, and it's not fair on the children. So, you know, you always hear two sides and yeah. And there's always know, the, the middle point, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's being open mm. to really, again, it's kind of a suspending your judgment, isn't it? And really kind of, listening and listening to try and understand and I don't think that always happens there's those preconceived ideas and people think they know what the issues are without actually really listening to understand and that's Mm. yeah that's the the challenging bit (laughs) is how you how you get that to happen yeah Mm. Samantha, do you mentor people that are coming into nursing who identify? Do you do you have a role there in terms? Because I know you mentioned mentorship. I just wonder whether that's something that you you do. It's something I would like to do, but it is there is no program at the moment. There is not. There's nothing like it, no. and that's what I guess I wanted to try and start. Um, you know, we've got hospitals that have gaps with university, uh, have gaps, sorry, have relationships with universities, yeah. you know, and it is something that I would like to start. It's something I have, I guess, spoken to many people about over the last few years. Yeah. Um, but so far, it's not something that's happened. Because that's, you know, that to have somebody who, you know, is a positive role model who is working, you know, in a service that's, doing a lot to try and close some of that gap I think is Mm. is to someone who's just starting out to be able to 
to connect and and see your growth and see the good work that you're doing is a really mm. positive role model for them and I think that's that's also really important really in terms of growing you know the next generation of nurses and understanding the culture and understanding that mm. you know for you to to be working in the role that you're doing you must get a lot of reward from that even though there's challenges and it's difficult it must be hugely mm. rewarding to be a part of that it is rewarding I think you know every small thing that you do is one extra thing yeah that's going to be beneficial to the community and to the you know to our people and you know you, you can do so much and I think that's where this telehealth role will be amazing because there's there's not really anything else like this you know the fact that the simple fact alone that a you can call up and you can speak to an Aboriginal South Australian nurse on the phone and yeah. ask for that like yeah. that gives you know the consumer so much power yes. to be able to ask to speak to someone of culture but then the other thing that now we're going to have an updated database that's going to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander specific services. Yeah. Is going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's small steps, isn't it? But that momentum mm. gathers in terms of change. You've got to start somewhere. And sometimes it's frustratingly slow, but the more traction you get on something and the more mm. that that rolls and the more people get to know about it. And I think, yeah. you know, even just things like this, talking you know to people about it and sharing your story and if you have the opportunity to write about it doesn't always have to be an academic piece of writing there's lots of different mm. ways now that you know people write blog posts which are not academic yeah. but it's a way of sharing your experiences and you know helping people to understand little by little you know that there are there are ways to do it differently and we do need to be exploring mm. different ways I think that's never never underestimate the power of one because <laughs> yeah you know it's sometimes I would imagine you it must be really really frustrating for you but just doing mm. what you're doing is is affecting change you know you are making a difference it's just we need to we need to multiply that across mm. lots of different places but I think it's, yeah, it, it must, it must, it must be rewarding in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think most of the time it's rewarding. It can be quite disheartening in some ways as well. Yeah. I think I've certainly come home some days and I've just been absolutely shattered because, you know, different projects I'm doing or different things that I want to do have been, you know, I guess taken in different, different angles and, you know, some of them I think without the knowledge you don't know that it's yeah. actually not culturally appropriate yeah. but sometimes you know it still runs that way and things and sometimes yeah. it can be really really disheartening to see those things and see things that you know should be so positive and should be so strong have you know maybe I guess gone in a different direction that yeah. isn't going to be as beneficial as you'd hoped but I think there's certainly things like this that are you know amazing and some of the jobs that I've done over the last particularly the last probably two years I've done a lot more positions where I've worked for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health roles yeah. and I've met some absolutely amazing people that are so strong and so passionate and you know then it brings the light back in to say yeah no there are people out there yeah. that have got the same passion as you that have yeah. got the same drive as you that are all working to make a change and yeah you know and it does empower you when you're in those environments like the workplace I'm in at the moment 
is absolutely amazing. The staff that I'm working with are incredible. You know, they're all so positive and we did big NADOC celebrations and we did a quiz with NADOC, you know, to, I guess, see what people knew about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health and, you know, give them prizes that were, you know, one of the girls in our group likes to sew and make things. So she made up a whole bunch of headset bags and they were yeah. in different um, prints that yeah. had a meaning and she gave the meaning to people that won the bags and things. You know, so those little things, you know, then you're educating at the same time and you've got a team that all wants to contribute and, you know, build things up. And I I think, yeah, it's absolutely incredible when you're surrounded by people like that. But when you're not surrounded by people like that, it can be really daunting and really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, (laughs) yeah, I I can appreciate that's, yeah, not not always easy. Not always easy. Yeah. So where do think? Sorry, can't you say? I was just going to say, I think it's like, it's really, yeah, really good when you find those people that are really positive and and pushing. It's it's finding them, isn't it? And connecting with them. It's, Mm. you know, because they're the people who (laughs) can support you really on those days where you, like you said, you come home and you just think, oh, you know, they're the people who can (laughs) keep you going really. Mm. Because that was one of the things I was going to ask you, you know, how do you, how do you look after you when you have those challenging times? Because they are challenging. Nursing itself mm. is a challenging job, but I think you you are also dealing with additional challenges because you you know you're aware of them and and trying to make a difference. And how do you manage that for you? Mm. I think in some ways I've gotten a bit stronger as well. So if I believe that something's not appropriate, then you know, I won't have an argument or anything about it. I will just walk away from it and leave it, you know, and then I'll just not engage, you know, so that way then I don't get the burden of, you know, keeping to go back to something that I don't feel like is culturally appropriate, you know. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think that certainly helps to to be, you know, and it maybe, you know, I'll say, well, you can speak to this person. They might be able to help you. But, you know, it's just, it's not for me. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned now is that, it's okay to walk away when you think something's not, not appropriate or not, you know, that you don't have to, you know, do everything that people want you to do, or you don't have to do these initiatives, you know, just because people want you to and things. Yeah. Um, And then my partner's quite supportive at home, which is good. We live on acreage. So I've got lots of trees around me. (laughs) You know, we've got chickens and dogs and (laughs) different things. So, you know, it, it certainly helps to, I think, come home and, yeah. you know for us and that's what it's like in the hospital system I guess for our patients but for me you know it certainly does coming home and you know being having land around me and having trees and that sort of stuff like that's I guess what I need to go yeah. forward and to feel okay and that's what our people struggle with when they're in hospitals is yeah. that they don't have that opportunity so yeah. I, I am quite lucky and quite blessed I think with where I'm living and I have a really good partner and really good friends and around yeah. me and and that connection to country is significant, isn't it, in terms of mm. what that does for your mental health and well-being? Is and I, as you say, I, I, you know, I used to think that all the time, seeing patients coming into metro, and you know, it's the city, and quite often from a kind of rural area, and yeah, that must that must be really really hard. 
and that's what keeps you grounded <laughs> yes it does and I guess that's why I say you know I'm I'm lucky and I'm quite privileged in a lot of ways yeah you know I have the opportunity to have all of this and yeah technically I'm still in somewhat of a metro area yet I've also got you know on a few acres and things yeah. so yeah quite lucky I think for me <laughs> yeah well that's good that's good can I ask you what advice would you give to somebody Samantha just starting out in their career who identifies as Aboriginal tourist Islander person what advice would you give them knowing what you know and kind of all the things that you've gone through and learnt and grown as a person what would you what would you say to them I think my biggest thing is find your mentor and find your people you know if you because nursing in general irrelevant of identity nursing as you've already said it is challenging it is hard you know I my background mostly for almost 17 years has been in the front line and it certainly hasn't been easy at times, you know, it, it certainly is struggling, but I think finding that mentor, that person that you can go and talk to that understands healthcare is, is what's really beneficial. And if you can find someone that also understands your culture, yeah, then, you know, you're, you're killing it. You're winning already. You know, you're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're half the battles there yeah. and I think I think that's what the hard thing is is just finding that yeah. person to link with but even also you know for me moving up here you know I didn't really know anywhere and I didn't know what to do so I went and I just met some of the elders that are up here and I just yeah. went and sat in their room I guess because they've you know most elders groups have like a community room where you can just go and sit and yeah. hang out and that's just what I did and I just went and sat in those rooms because I didn't know where else to go and didn't know anyone else and you know and I did that or you know university was really supportive because they have the um Aboriginal Torres Strait unit and things you yeah. know <laughs> and I think yeah. it, it's good to link in with people yeah yeah and that's yeah that mm. that connection's important isn't it and I was just thinking when you're talking because I know there's a phrase that you used before and I when I first came here I loved hearing the word yarning because <laughs> I think for me it just you know I just think it's a lovely word it just conjures up that whole being mm. part of a community and having a natter and being connected you know and you reference mm. that and I've heard people talk a lot about that. I just think it's a lovely, a lovely expression. Mm. But yeah. So I think that's, that's good, good advice um, to give to somebody who's just starting out. And I think the other thing I, I really want to ask you, Samantha, is what would you most like to be remembered for in your career? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything I want to be remembered for. I guess myself, what I want to remember is that I've contributed to closing the gap for my people. Yeah. I think, you know, having my name isn't the end, you know, no. be all sort of thing. You know, I don't necessarily want to be remembered for anything in particular. I just want to be a part of closing the gap for my Aboriginal Australander people. And, you know, and if I can be a part of that and if I can contribute to making change and making that gap be closed and there being no such thing as a close the gap, <laughs> I yeah. think that that would be I think yeah. a biggest achievement is to just be part of that and that's your passion isn't it that's that's what comes out when you talk you know you, mm. you articulate all of that really well when you talk about you know mm. your communities and your people and I think 
it's that's a to have a passion like that and a vision is the thing that drives you and keeps you going forward mm. on the days where it's you know tough and challenging that's the bit that that helps you get where mm. you need to be and I think you know it's a good mindset to have Samantha and I'm sure you will have lots of opportunities to influence mm. and educate and carry on the work that you've started and I really genuinely hope that you know by telling your story and people listening to this that you know maybe somebody will get in touch and say hey that's a really great idea about mentorship how can we help you because at the end of the day that's what this is about it's about connections it's about people telling stories it's about you know me giving a voice to somebody to be able for them someone to listen and think actually that's something I can help with and if mm. you know that's something that comes out of this for you you know I, I would really hope that that is the case that somebody listening will think actually I need mm. to talk to Samantha because she's got some great ideas and how do we make yeah. that happen because it's mm. not that difficult it's just knowing sorry I don't mean to I don't mean to um reduce that down it, it oh, is no, no. It's a big issue what I'm meaning is if you know the people who can help you it makes it easier is mm. what I was trying to say yeah I think that's important you know mm. well it certainly does and I yeah for me I'm trying to I guess combine two passions you know I love yeah I love my people and I want to close the gap for my people but I also yeah. like frontline so I guess something I do look at doing is you know next or it early next year I want to start looking at retrieval jobs yeah. you know so I'll be obviously working out of a plane or a chopper and going out to areas and picking people up that are unwell yeah but I guess part of that what I'd love to do as well is you know when I go and pick up somebody that identifies in those areas is then also say you know how how can we as a retrieval service if I obviously once I eventually get into it yeah but how can we as a retrieval service how can we then benefit those people in that community by taking their family member away and what can we do from a retrieval perspective to I guess facilitate their recovery within this hospital that we're yeah. taking them to as yeah. well and you know because at the end of the day you know yes we just do that short service and yeah. you know and that would be it for retrievals but at the same time we're also seen as a person that's coming in yeah. to help their family member and to save their family member but we're also seen as a person that's taking them away yeah yeah. So, you know, I, I guess for me, like that's my next goal is that yeah. I want to, I guess, combine both my passions and, you know, still work in the yeah. front line, but yeah. also work on how I can close that gap. And I think that would be something amazing to achieve and be part of a team that does that. That's a great goal to have, Samantha. <laughs> a great goal to have. And I, you know, I would love to come back and, and you know, in a couple of years and interview you and say, right, you know, tell me because <laughs> I've no doubt I've no doubt you will do that you you are passionate about you know what you do and I have no doubt that you will achieve that and it, it honestly uh, it's been lovely to, to talk with you today you know because I think it's an important story to hear and we've covered a lot of things in there and I, and I really thank you for your time today yeah, it's been, I think, quite good. I was obviously quite nervous about it, as you knew. Um, I know. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's been quite good and it, 
and it is positive. And I think just doing these things and being yeah. given the opportunities like this yeah. to, you know, get your story out and to talk about these things, you know, yeah. this, this is how we're going to close the gap is by yeah. speaking about it. Yeah. I think you're providing an amazing opportunity to people to be able to do that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 